Dotnet Rocks episode 931 with guest Joel Semeniak. Recorded live Wednesday, December 4th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Atlanta! It's .NET Rocks! I have a question for you. How many roads are named Peachtree in this town? (laughs) All of them. What is up with that? We tried to get... Yeah, you love peaches, I know. Eat a peach, as they say. We tried to get here on time. We were here on time. It's only because we were early to start. Because I think the GPS was like, oh, well, you're on Peachtree. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Then we did a couple of orbits around, but we eventually yeah. found our way on. But well, here we are. Yeah, and we're very happy to be here back in Atlanta for the Modern Apps Road Trip 2013. You guys having a good time? Yeah. Yeah. Big crowd uh, today around the Xamarin discussion. That was pretty awesome. Very good stuff. We're very excited about Visual Studio 2013 and all the things that, all the magic that you can do with it. Uh, let's get started with our show, however. Roll the music for Better Know Framework. Somebody, what do you got? Well, as you know, every road trip, what happens? Uh, you to bring me. a laptop. Yeah, I break you a break laptop. A la- it, you're a four for four. That's right. You break a laptop every road something trip. Something happens. I don't know what happens, but on every road trip, something happens to a laptop. And we won't go into how they get broken. I have no idea how this one broke, but uh, let's just say the blue screen of death was smiling upon me today. Many, many times. And yesterday. Uh, so we tried to fix the problem yesterday. We stopped at a micro center, got a brand new hard drive, installed Windows 8.1, which, by the way, I'm loving, uh, Windows 8.1. Did a few things to boot directly into desktop and, you know, get rid of my default players and all that stuff. And I loved it. But the blue screens came back, so... Yeah, it's hardware. Yeah, it's hardware, absolutely. So uh, if you go to tinyurl.com slash Carl's New Toy... Nice. Carl's New Toy. And I'm not kidding. You'll find the laptop that I'm going to oh, buy. Which one the, did you go for? The Ultrabook that I'm going to buy at, as we leave here tonight. Right. Probably after dinner, actually. Yeah. And it's the Asus ZenBook UX301LA... Dash DH71T. Boy, that just rolls off the tongue. Isn't that it? awesome? Yeah. Or Bob for short. Yeah, or Bob. So this is an Ultrabook with a 13.3 inch screen. It's about two grand US. Has eight gigs. It's a Core i7. Um, what I like about it, it's got as far as uh, storage, two 250. I'm sorry, two 128 gig drives in a RAID zero configuration. Nice. And a 2560 by 1440 screen. That's, that's good. That's like a 30, almost like a 30-inch. Yeah. So that's pretty good. Uh, Intel HD graphics 5000 card in there. 
It's a, it's got a mini display port, a mini HDMI, a gigabit LAN, of course, all the you know Bluetooth and memory card readers and all that stuff. Cool. USB three and all the things that you'd expect. It's about two point six pounds, eight hour battery life, and uh, comes with Windows eight point one. Of course, it's touch, so you know paper thin, ultra light, and uh, high power. I'll ask you about it on the next leg of the road trip. See how it's doing. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah, it will be. Well, you know it. it Anybody who knows me knows that I like big laptops. Yeah, and this, this will be the smallest laptop you've bought in a long time. Yeah, this will be the smallest. He buys laptop. a laptop where even the keypad attached to the keyboard looks small. Yeah. People look at that laptop and go, holy crap, look how big that laptop is. And he always says, yeah. you should see the big one. <laughs> Especially the TSA guys. Uh, you know, I like messing with them. They go, oh, my God. What do you do with that thing? I'm like, I write code. And then they say, what's and that? And it has a three-pound power supply you can kill small animals with. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Make sure the processor is fourth generation, he says. All right. I will make sure. Thank you. Uh, so that's all I got, my new toy. Awesome. I figured, what the hell. Yeah, that's a good gadget. Yeah. Who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 824, and that's the one we did with Scott Ambler. We yep. were talking about Agile. It was a while ago, actually. That was the last road trip. Uh, you're right. Yeah, it was the last road trip. And this comment comes from James McLaughlin. So it's about a year ago, and he said, and I brought this up because Joel's with us. So you've got two Canadians to one here. Right? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Canadian banks. Well, a particular one that I used to work for anyway, but no names. It is so mired in waterfall, top-down, micromanagement, twice-daily meetings, shifting organization and responsibility. Everything is a nail for my project and change management hammer. Frederick W. Taylor, physical construction thinking that very little value is added when code gets written. But full-time people don't have to write reams of new code or rewrite existing apps, so it gets farmed out to other firms using, wait for it, Agile. In-house mm. coding consists of changing a few lines at a time. Mm. That's why Canadian banks' websites mostly still look like it's 1999 and have horrible usability. Mm. Pop-ups, empty PDFs for you to print and fill out, unstyled <laughs> HTML elements, and that's the public face the line of business apps are barely maintainable and ugly. That's why I left and joined a place that was braced agile. I feel more productive than ever before. And that's from James McLaughlin. And I just, I love the rant yeah. of just... Tell us know, how you really feel, man. Yeah, don't hold back, yeah. buddy. I know you're, you're shy. It's awesome. You love, you love this idea of they have all of this process, and then they end up farming out the work to somebody with a totally different process. Yeah. Does that make sense? No. That's fascinating. That's anyway, good. I figured... Figured Joel would appreciate that. I'm sure we're going to go down that path sometime in the next hour or so. So, James, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises, who'd like to build you an app. So just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. Uh, before we keep going, he okay. said the tablet show by accident there. Do you know about the tablet show? Tablet Show listeners? All right. The okay. Tablet Show is .NET Rocks with a focus on heterogeneous mobile development. That's it. Tablets, so, phones, iOS, Android, Windows. But it's the same stuff, show. Yeah. It's the same format. It's Richard and I am interviewing guests for an hour. Exactly the same Same thing. jokes. Same jokes. Yeah. And it's at thetabletshow.com. So if you're interested in this, we've been talking about this since the first build. So uh, lots of lots of content there, and you can sort of see the history of how we got to today. It's pretty neat. 
And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with hundreds of hardcore developer training courses offered by MVPs and industry experts and .NET Rocks show guests. It's true. They release over 40 new courses every month and still offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. With a wide range of developer topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything on the Microsoft stack. And uh, by the way, lots of agile stuff. Yep. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our guest, Joel Semeniuk. He's been on .NET Rocks many times. He's the founder of Imaginet Resources Corporation, a Canadian-based Microsoft Gold partner. He's also a Microsoft Regional Director and MVP for Microsoft ALM and has a degree in computer science. With many, many years of experience, Joel specializes in helping organizations around the world realize their potential through maturing their software development and information technology practices. Joel's passionate about application lifecycle management tooling, techniques, and mindsets, and regularly speaks at conferences around the world on a wide range of ALM topics. Joel is also the co-author of Managing Projects with Microsoft Visual Studio Team System, published by Microsoft Press, as well as dozens of other articles for popular trade magazines. Welcome, Joel Semeniuk. Woo, that was a mouthful. It was. That was the short one, too. <laughs> <laughs> Did I write that? I think I got, uh, a, I, got, wow. I got an even bigger one to go on the website. Excellent. Yes. Well, you've been up to a lot of stuff, <clears throat> sir. I am busy. If you're not busy, you're, you're you know, doing bad things, so uh, you have to keep busy. Well, at least you're chasing mosquitoes around in Winnipeg. I love chasing mosquitoes. They're <laughs> as big as dogs up there. Yeah. So. That's the state bird, isn't it? It is the state bird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mark Dunn, who is from Atlanta, is from Atlanta and was the first .NET Rocks host. He used to say that bugs are a means of transportation down here. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah. I've never tried riding a mosquito. I'll, I'll put that on my bucket list. Nice. So what have you been working on lately? Well, um, as, as many of your listeners know, I used to be uh, working with Telerik over yes. the last number of years, about mm -hmm. three and a half years, building uh, an agile project management tool, a requirements management tool. Mm -hmm. uh, we've uh, folded that into the Telerik core, and now I'm back at Imagine It, nice. uh, the company I started in 1997, to um, continue to be a disruptive kind of guy. So my, my title is Chief Innovation Officer, which is, by the way, if you ever get this job, it's awesome. I don't really have any responsibilities. I don't really have to do anything except go around and disrupt. Um, <laughs> so I, I work with customers. I think about um, opportunities that they have to uh, disrupt uh, their customers and employees. And I also work with Imagine It to bring new offerings and new um, innovations to the table worldwide. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing that fairly uh, headlong since about August now. You and I were talking before we started this whole event today outside having some coffee, and it's, we sort of had the same revelation at the same time that, you know, this version of Visual Studio is uh, is exactly what I was going to talk about here today. It, it's less about, you know, fixing pain and fixing problems and more about magic. Like, it's just like, like yeah. you said, Harry Potter. Harry Potter stuff. Yeah. yeah, pure land of Harry Potter. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we've been doing this for a very long time. We've seen Visual Studio and the development environment change rapidly over the last uh, two decades, I, I guess now. And it has been painful at and times. And it has been painful. And every single release, you're just hoping for them to release something that would resolve one more of your pain. Right. But now you've got stuff in there for the very first time that doesn't just resolve your pain. 
gives you more opportunities to do things that you never even considered before, right? right? You're like, whoa, I didn't know I needed a code lens, but now that I have it, I need it. Yes. <laughs> right? I didn't, I, you know, uh, do you remember years ago we talked about uh, when Visual Studio just came out, our Team Foundation server uh, first came out, I wrote an app that was assigned blame. Yes. yes. Right? One of the, one of the early And shows. so yeah. the app would go through your code. And make, you know, r tell you who the last person was to modify that piece, that line of code, line by line, so that if something were to break in that code, I know who to blame. Right. <laughs> and so, but now we have this kind of stuff kind of built in to Visual Studio and not even, you know, through, you know, line by line, um, um, breakdown, but I can go into a piece of code and I can see the comments that were made around. I can see who touched it last. Mm -hmm. I can see the extra collaboration. I can go into all of its, all of its references and, you know, little things like that. I didn't know I needed until I had it. Yeah. And that's an example of the magic that I think is that there's been so many other things. So, I mean, who here has done, you know, uh, testing, uh, or load testing in your environment? I mean, that's a hard problem, yep. right? You want to, you know, through, uh, throw a few thousand users at your website, um, setting up your test harnesses and setting up your environments and worrying about where you're going to saturate load versus the client or if it's going to be your network or if it's going to be your, you know, your, your server itself is a hard, hard problem. And all of a sudden we have the ability as a click of a switch to take my load tests from Visual Studio and go, oh yeah, run them from the cloud, please. Thank mm. you. <sighs> yeah. Now, like, you, now you can DDoS your whole system. And that is Harry Potter stuff. I don't yeah. know how it works. I don't care how it works. I just know that I can wave my wand, and it gives me a magic chart at the end of it that tells me that something is right or something's wrong. Nice. Yeah. It's just awesome. It right? is awesome. Um, for those who don't know what Code Lens is, is that the main thing? Is the ability to look at a line of code and see its whole history? A uh, Code Lens is, is kind of like a heads-up display for your vehicle. And instead of having to look down and try to <coughs> search around for the different things, it tells you everything you probably would like to know about uh, your code as you're looking at it. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at a proc, you can actually break, you can see all the dependencies on that proc. You can even see whether the test cases for that proc have passed or failed the last time around. Right. So it's everything that you would normally want to see when you'd want to see it, where you'd want to see it as well. You don't have to go looking for it. So they call that code lens. Nice. Yeah. Well, and I think you know, it speaks to that there's different ways of looking at Studio at different times. When you're trying to find the place to start work, it seems like code lens is just what you want. It sort of leads you to the path of, okay, now I can see where I need to start work, and now I can study the feature I want to build or the correction I'm trying to make and, and sort of dig into it. But just getting oriented in a system. I found that, that takes time each day to sit down and pick up where you left well, off. It's about context. I mean, you always want to, you, you were talking about interruptions before, and you know, why yeah. are interruptions bad? It's because yeah. the human brain takes about 15 minutes to get back into context, right? Yeah. And you know, you know how that feels. When you're in the zone, sure. time stops. Yeah. You don't notice anything around you. A little bit of drool happens. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden, you, you know, someone knocks on your door. You're like, whoa, what was that? Yeah. Three hours had gone by. And then try to get back in there. Yeah. Try to get back in that context. As an author, I've struggled with that. And that's why I'd write from 11 till 2 o'clock in the morning. TV's not on anymore. Kids aren't awake. I can get into the zone. Time flies. And I have... The greater the depth of the zone, the deeper the context I have. And right. so getting back into that context, you want to have tools like that to get you there. Right. Um, because really, software development is not a technological problem. It is actually a human problem. Mm. And we deal with those human problems um, every day to make us better at software development. How exactly do you say it's a human problem? Is it just about the way you think? It's about everything. It's about the way you think, the way that you collaborate, more importantly. It's very funny. Years ago, I created a hypothesis that said if your team was dysfunctional, 
so will be your software. Right. Um, so that if you had you know, a dysfunction between your users and your team or between different members of your team, you will actually have a reflection of that in your software. You'll have functionality that just isn't right. You're building the wrong component, right? Or you're building two parts of the same app um, that don't work well together, don't feel well. The software right? really is a reflection of the minds that create it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I used to describe it as computers are only amplifiers. They can amplify your intelligence or they can amplify your stupidity. Mm. Which would you like? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and now, like, software is becoming to be much more complicated. I mean, before, when we were writing those command line applications, did we have to worry about UX? Mm. No. But all of a sudden, I have to start thinking about different ways of managing my team, and it's gotten more and more complicated. I mean, we have, we all talk and love Agile, um, and Agile is, is a step towards where we need to be. But it's gotten even more complicated, uh, especially if you think about the UX role. Um, you know, the UX role is very experience-based, it's very emotional-based as well, right? We have a UX expert involved, but he wants to get to know that person. We need to know the persona. Where are mm. they coming from? What's their age? What's their history? So how they're creepers. They're, they're creepers, yeah. right? But that deeply <laughs> exactly. impacts how we're developing software. And that changes even some of the processes that we have to develop that software. So there's a lot of things that we have to think about in, in the human side of things when we're developing software right now. And it's not just about things like code lens or my ability to write a build. Those are things that are really important. But mm -hmm. if I get my requirements wrong... Those are even more important, sure. right? So that uh, plays a large role into what we're doing. Now, quite straight, strictly speaking, I'm not a, an agilist in terms of the dogma of agile. I'm a lean guy. Right. I've been preaching about lean now for almost a decade. Sure. Uh, and the biggest difference between lean uh, is that um, uh, continually we have a process of continual process improvement, and we focus on learning and knowledge and reduction of waste. And we mm. get there by incrementally adopting agile practices mm. where they make sense for us. Right. Um, because uh, it's interesting, as I work with organizations, uh, change in culture, you guys mentioned it in your, your keynote, culture is a big component mm -hmm. towards having a successful dev environment. So how do you change culture? People don't change because they think it's a good idea. Right. People change only for two reasons, because it relieves pain yep. or they have immediate gain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no other reason. Right? So when you're changing your organizational culture, they need to be rooted in one of those two. It's almost the wrong question to ask um, you know, to, for a team to go to an expert without any knowledge of, from the expert of the team and ask the expert, should we use this you know, particular agile methodology? You know, the answer is no. You know, the, no, you shouldn't. There is no without your need for it. That's exactly it. I mean... I find it overbearing that a lot of agile practitioners are so dogma, dogmatic about it. It's like, mm -hmm. you're not agile if you're not doing TDD or, right. you know, you're not agile if you're not doing these rigid things that we tell you you should be doing according to the dogma. I really do reflect that change is a reflection of, or the need for change is a reflection of the team itself and the realization that change needs to happen. Right. So even at Imagine It, we have a lot of uh, assessment techniques that aren't just about the maturity of uh, you know, software development practices, but it's about what software development practices make sense for you right now. Right. And then what can you build upon as you mature in your you know, own it's organization? Almost that they want you to experience the failure, but or the you know the problem, and and be with that problem and with you know rub up against that potential of failure before you implement something that will solve it. So you're not just picking 
a solution before you know that there's a problem, before you understand the problem. And that, my friend, is lean. Yeah. <laughs> right? So the, it, does that basically mean we have to put all of our people in pain before we can get a good practice in place? It, it sure helps. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know there's, there's this well, great book out. It says, start with the why. And it turns out that high intellect people like everyone in this room, people who crave knowledge and understanding, need to have a why. They don't like to be handed a process yeah. without understanding the why. What does this save? Why are you telling me to, you know, fill out these work items and, and associate them with the check-ins? Why are you telling me to do that? Right? Because there's obviously a pain associated with it. It's not just because it's the dogma of an organization. And I think that's why sometimes processes break down quickly. And you wonder why kids struggle with math, right? Because there's no why there's attached no to why. what they're doing. Well, I think we're starting to see a lot of changes in the educational system just as a side topic that yeah. really does start with the yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. The, uh, I was recently talking to a group of developers who were very frustrated with their senior managers who were quite rigid on a particular process that they wanted to change. And, and felt he was just blind. I said, actually, I think if you got to know him better, you'd see, you'd find some scars hmm. that people with lots of experience uh, have scar tissue around bad things that have happened yep. that make them think a particular way. They didn't pick it at random. It comes from that experience, and they're, it's very tough to change their mind. I used to be uh, an IBM project manager, and, and why I say that is because IBM, we had a lot of process. Uh, but there were really good reasons for those things. So when you walk in the door, you're like, how am I going to learn to be an IBM project manager when they give me a stack of information this tall? And so thou shalt track all of this information. Mm. But when so, you start so, kind of digging out, it's like, well, there's that one customer who's out to get. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you need to think about that one customer um, and, and protect yourself from there, from a liability perspective, from an ongoing relationship perspective. There's pain. Uh, and some of the, the things that I see over and over again is that sometimes the reaction of t to pain is to actually pull back and go to the opposite direction. Mm. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to get organizations to think differently, that sometimes the reaction shouldn't be the opposite extreme, but just to kind of step back and understand even why that pain exists sure, right. in the first place. What happened here and why? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and really communicate that. So yeah. uh, years ago, when we first started talking on the .NET Rock show, uh, we were talking a lot about Agile. And I was telling you guys that I'm, I'm a lean guy. Right. And that there's actually only one process that ever matters in an organization. You know, it's not automated builds. It's not uh, requirements management. It's an ongoing dedication to process improvement. Right. And it has its own cadence and it has its own rhythm. But it's the only project that ever should exist. Hmm. Um, because if you do that every two weeks, every week, uh, for example, you start thinking about, boy, that was painful. Let's come up with something to not have to deal with that pain again. Work you, on your, your methodology every week? That seems awfully frequent. Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you take a look at Scrum, Scrum has a built-in um, meeting called a retrospective. And right. that happens according to the dogma of Scrum, at the end of uh, every sprint. So right. if you have a two-week sprint, you're going to have a retrospective. And a retrospective is nothing to do about the software you built, but about how you did as a team right. to see how you could get better, right? Stop doing the things that were painful. Do more of the things that were good uh, and start building them in to evolve your, your kind of the microprocesses that support the, the, the Scrum framework. So. so would you start by just observing the team as they are? 
you have to start where you are. My my experience is not. Uh, I, I'm not a revolutionary change agent. Yeah. I'm an evolutionary change agent. Mm-hmm. It needs to have some kind of uh, need to spark an evolutionary change, and, and and that usually is pain. So what I usually start off doing is promoting the fact that we need to observe the fact that we got to the point we're in for some reason. Right. We were, you know, we made decisions that got to us, to, got to this point now. And when you start uh, unraveling that, though, and you, you're making, you know, prescriptive changes, often those changes come in groups, in chunks, you know. And uh, it's kind of hard to iterate. It's kind of hard to say, okay, we're going to make this change, but we're going to stop there and see how you, you sort of kind of have to, don't you agree, make a few changes at the, sa- at the it, same time. It depends on all what you can handle within an organization. And so but many organizations. Your experience has been well small numbers are better uh, but never usually just one yeah Uh, so even when it comes to change we like to think of having a work in progress limit just like you don't give a developer 30 things to work on in two weeks right uh, it doesn't make sense you know how how would you actually govern that so what we'd want to do is have a work in progress limit of the changes we're making itself and here's the other other thing that i try to promote how do we know that the change was good right right we know that by hey how do you feel no, you know that by measurement. Sure. And that's why a lot of the agile practices, we promote forms of measurement. Um, you know, you mentioned in your earlier speech today, uh, cycle times. Yep. Those are things we can measure. Yep. How long does it take for me to click compile and do a deployed uh, automated build? Mm. Is that getting faster or slower? Right. How long does it take to go from, you know, my staging environment to a production? Can I do that in an hour or does it take a week? Yeah. You know, these are things that we can measure and become the KPIs for the reflection of the changes that we're seeing within our organization. Well, the big thing I found working with teams with started owning those numbers is we figured out that going faster was better suddenly it made sense to do testing differently because testing was taking half a day and that was actually impairing quality of software, which seemed crazy. It's like, hey, our software is better when testing, testing is thorough but quick so that you can get back to the developer quickly to show the problems. Mm. Well, and, and I've seen the, such a, an extreme view of this. I've seen agile teams work in an agile way, very agile, until and then they said, well, okay, we're done. We're going to pass this over to QA now. Right. And the QA starts back uh, by trying to think about whether or not the requirements are even correct or not. And <laughs> yeah. they're not. Uh, <laughs> they never right? And, so, and then hence starts the process again. And it really kind of gets you to think, why aren't we talking? And the same happens with operations. Sure. And that's why we talk about DevOps so much. DevOps isn't this new thing. No one sat down and said, hey, let's invent DevOps as a way of solving the world's problem. It's actually a way that we've said, hey, this has worked really well. Whenever our dev people work hand in hand with our ops people, life is better. Yeah. Um, wait, do you remember when uh, Halo just came out mm-hmm. uh, and we were working uh, on the Xbox and we had, what was it, the Xbox Live account where you can get your data from your Halo games kind of live? Yeah. So I wrote a, a Microsoft um, white paper, a technical article about them. And I got to spend a week at Bungie, at the Bungie Studios. Nice. By the way. Whoa! Right? <laughs> like these, these developers were all you know they all had like five green Xboxes on their stands uh, you know and we'd be mid interview interview you know talking about their dev practices and they kind of look at each other they go it's time and then run off and then go play like twenty minutes of Halo like not even testing just playing Halo coming back we're like okay we're good now uh, and but what they were able to do is as soon as you were done your your team game those. That data was available through an RSS feed mm. in about 10 seconds. Wow. 
Yeah. Mm. How did they do that? And they did that by having weekly meetings with the operations team, right. by solving the problem together, not making it someone else's problem. Did we call it DevOps back then? No, we called it good practice. Mm. You know, these are things that we like to have. Now we have a name for it, so it's, so it's official. Yeah, it's apparently it's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Now. I just keep. We, I, I find guys who are now saying I'm a DevOps. Yeah, uh, engineer. Guy. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> last time I looked, it was a lifestyle, not a job. Yeah, right. And yeah. a lot of a lot of making DevOps work is is a people problem, as Richard likes to say. Pizza is sort of like the universal lubricant. You know, the developers and IT guys don't usually talk to each other because you know they're just naturally set up to. To, to, to fight or, or just to repel each other. But, uh, who was it that told us, you know, going, if you don't, if they smoke, you know, going out for a cigarette, you can actually get a lot done. Yeah. Hanging out with, as a developer, hanging out with an IT guy outside the door, just having a smoke. Hey, you know, we could really use a, a you know, a server to, to test our blah, blah, blah on. He said, yeah, I can make that happen. We're at. Yeah, no problem. We've done the same thing. I'm going to have lung cancer one day because of that problem. More to do with our users, though, than DevOps, because we go to where they're smoking outside and ask them questions. That's the only time that they had for us. And when it's minus 40 Fahrenheit in Winnipeg, that means that you're close to death. You're risking your life to do that. And that's how important. But apparently guys who are in a meeting, you know, and you ask them in a meeting and they're like, well, you know, that's going to take a a whole lot of time. You know, apparently when they're out for smoke, things are a lot different. When the boss is in the room. Yeah. yeah. When they're I, outside the building, it's kind of weird. Well, I guess this is what excites me more about um, Microsoft ALM's approach. I started working with, the, with Microsoft's Team Foundation server and the whole ALM strategy way back in 2004. Mm-hmm. I was brought in really early because I had done so much work on the ALM front with other tooling systems to help kind of think about what it means for Microsoft to enter this game. Um, and it was really kind of frustrating for me because it was a very narrow niche. And if you took, take a look at all the different versions of Microsoft ALM prior to this, it was very, very team-centric and dev team-centric, I might yes. even add. Mm. And it would slowly start to add increments into operations and slowly start to give you stuff that was uh, more important for dev managers. Right. But it really wasn't rooted in dev managers. It really wasn't, wasn't rooted for in, in operations. It felt that way about QA, too. It's like Absolutely. they were all second-class citizens. They're all second class. But what we're seeing is that every continual iteration, we're finding a, a greater embrace of the life cycle part of that, the, the, the greater breadth of the application life cycle management. And they, they're doing it in such a way that makes those challenges that we had almost trivial before. Like I told you about the testing thing. I mean, how hard would it be for me to do that two weeks ago? Right. Right? Hard. And, and how much coordination would it would have taken? I was like, I need servers in Australia and in India to hit my server, and I need to see the differences between the load and the performance that my website has. How hard would that have been? Super hard. Yep. And how easy is that now? Harry Potter magic. Yep. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and I don't care how they do it. They do it, and it just it's awesome. And it's awesome. It just yeah. sort of works. Yeah. Uh, what other features are you excited about in 2013? Do you read... Uh, I like the instrumentation side of TFS, but I don't think anybody talks about it. I tell you, you know, the app, they call it app, app Insights right. now, right? And it's still in beta, but we've always been doing this. I mean, everybody uses Google Analytics on your website. You would never conceive releasing a website nowadays without Google <coughs> Analytics. Yep. 
And the reason we do that is because we understand how people are using this. Uh, some guy shaking his head back there is like, yeah, I release uh, websites all the time with Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, you, you, you want to do this because you want to understand or validate their guesses because everything we do is a guess. Right. Let's, uh, let's just put it on the table. We guess a lot. Right, so if there's any way we can measure and validate our guesses, that would be one way of doing it. So Google Analytics is something we can put on our website so we can validate where customers are coming from, how they're using their site, our flow uh, of, uh, of the, their usage through a site. But now we can bake that right into our apps, but more importantly, we can actually trace that right down to code, mm. right? That's the big cool thing that I don't think anybody realizes. We don't just get this performance and load and traceability. We can actually tie it directly to the code engine mm. and see exactly what line of code. Now, I work with a ton of orgs not on producing, making their agile teams, but I believe that an effective agile team needs to work in an agile business. Ooh, right? We talked about that bank. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you have to think differently as an agile business. And what I mean by an agile business is to recognize that even from the top down, we need to realize that we're guessing and much of what we do is experimentation. So, you know, you obviously have these books called The Lean Startup. You yep. probably have all read it. Can those be applied to enterprises? Can an organization that is a bank think more like a lean startup, which is based in experimentation mode? And the answer is purely yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can use those analytics to not only tell you where your application is failing, but also to help close the loop on your fe- your feature prioritization. I mean, one of the mistakes I've made early in my career is to, to think that I knew what the customer wanted. Right. Even though they were telling me, I need these things. So I'd go, great. And I'd build them and put them in the app. And then I realized they weren't using them. Huh, I've wasted a lot of time. And as a lean guy, I, want to re- I don't want to do things that are wasteful. So why not pop up a button that does nothing on your app and measure how many people click on it? I'm oversimplifying, (laughs) right? It says, hey, new feature here, right? Uh, Click on this. It does all these great things for you. And if nobody clicks on it, why would I build it? Even though they're telling me to do so. Um, That happens all the time. And that's a lean thinking business. And conversely, if everybody clicks on that button and not the buttons you want them to click on, you got to move that configuration to the button they actually clicked on. Well, and that's some of the the results that you'll see in the code lens. Uh, You've probably all installed Visual Studio and says help make Visual Studio better. Click yes on there because they're trying to understand how you use the product so that they can, when you're popping up the code lens, kind of know what you'd normally need to do at that Mm. particular point. That gives them the insight to say, hey, people want to see the conversations that were happening here. People want to see who touched the code last uh, when they're doing these types of activities. It's really important. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, It must be that happy time again. Right. Time to pour a stein of butter beer, wave the magic wand, and give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. But before I tell you who the winner is, I need to tell you that this episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Icinium, which enables you to develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript. The new release of Icinium will allow .NET developers to utilize all of this goodness from within Visual Studio. And these capabilities include comprehensive backend as a service in the cloud, integrated support for Kendo UI and jQuery mobile, and integrated testing and deployment capabilities, making Icinium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. 
Telerik Icinium with its new Visual Studio extension is available on a subscription basis and is now part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. So start a free 30-day trial of Icinium, that's I-C-E-N-I-U-M, with support at icinium.com slash DNR. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks all these years. Absolutely. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Nora Hanum. Congratulations, Nora. Big round of applause. That's uh, Telerik DevCraft Complete. Just about everything Telerik does in one box. That's a $2,000 value. We also give away one of my CDs, Been a While, mm-hmm. which uh, I've been talking about. People are probably yes, sick of hearing me. Yes, in the RV. Here, probably people are sick of hearing me talk about it, but the great John Schofield, who played with Miles Davis and me, he plays <laughs> on it. Uh, if you like classic rock, Steely Dan, Eagles, good harmonies and horns and good stuff, you'll like Ben a while. Go to carlfranklin.com if you want to listen to it. It's also on iTunes and uh, Amazon MP3 and Nokia Music. Today's winner is Bud Wheeler. Congratulations, Bud. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky Indeed member we of do. the In fan fact, club. we're going to do that next week. Next week? Next week, we give it away. Yeah. So, uh, never know what the, what the package is going to look like. It's uh, always interesting. Our, our winner gets to pick. But we ask our guests every time. That's right, we do. Joel Semeniuk, if you had $5,000, or what do you say in Canada, five large? <laughs> to, uh, spend, five grand? Five grand to spend on, uh, on technology today, what would you buy? Uh, can I split it up, or is yeah, that one thing? Nope. No, of course. Uh, I am fascinated with um, bio, uh, the biofeedback devices for the... For, um, the Fitbit The Fitbits and stuff like that. Right. So I would buy every known device Dude, and strap it on. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. You would have stuff strapped on. I know. But that, that to me, the biofeedback stuff is just, uh, you know, the wearable computing yep. is awesome. Yeah, you're all in that. Yeah, there's, so, uh, there's an Indiegogo going on right now called Push that is actually measuring how much stress your muscles are under while you're lifting. Wow. So where you, the Fitbit Force can measure that you're running, because it's, it's actually an accelerometer. Yeah. This one's looking at the muscle tension, so you can say, oh, you're curling weights, and here's how much pressure you're putting on your right. muscles. Well, there's so much other innovation. You need a device to now. tell you you're curling weights? Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? I don't yeah. know. Don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> but you are curling weights. <laughs> what I find really exciting is that there are some that are using light um, to measure your blood sugar. Yep. You know, so if you're thinking of if you're a diabetic or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, you, you've got these devices that are starting to kind of be like these tricorders that are constantly kind of monitoring your business, mm-hmm. your, your, your personal business, and, <laughs> and alerting you to things that, you know, you should be uh, aware of. So Is that light blood sugar detector non-invasive? In other words, it is, is non-invasive. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. really cool. And there's more and more technology that, that's coming out along those lines. I just wow. I find it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, on the uh, Kickstarter list for the ScanDo which is closed, which is basically a tricorder. It's a little module. You press it up to your head. It reads all kinds of things from you. It dumps to your phone automatically. Does your list include Google Glass then? It does, but it still kind of scares me. I have to admit, every, I've, I've met a number of people with the Google Glass. I'm like, is that on? <laughs> is it re- did it recognize my face and pull up you know my re- my criminal record um you know so it does freak me out the google glass absolutely does freak me out so nice. i'm not socialized to it yet. yeah 
And who is really? Yeah, mean, really. They are calling them glass holes for a reason. <laughs> I guess. Well, you have one, so well, what does that say about still, you? Mine's still in the box. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to even open it. <laughs> I'll do that in private. Is there a Canadian version of glass hole that's a little more polite? Yeah, it has a little sign on it that says sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can go through five grand if we got all of those gadgets together. Yeah, it's a sure. big list, though. Yeah. That's boy, exciting. Boy. I it's mean, fun. imagine tying Google Glass into a dev environment. I, you know, that it's not, I like the idea of Google Glass just because you'd have the reference thing. But the one that I'm really fascinated by is the Emotive headset. Mm. So Emotive is the, is the brain control headset. They got a new version coming out. But it's not the control part that I found interesting. We did that show with Guy Smith Farrar. Yeah. And what he was watching is how his brain reacted to different music. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking in terms of you had this thing on, it's measuring your brain waves and it can detect that you're thrashing before you even realize you're thrashing. Interesting. Because it's looking at the pattern of thinking or it knows. Just the same way I'd, you know, I've sat down to, to code and after an hour said, I'm making a mistake. Like, I'm about to make this project worse. Mm-hmm. I should go walk the dog. It would do less harm. Right? Mm. right? So what if you actually were wearing a machine? It's like, you are not in the right mental state to program. Or now started changing the music or changing the environment to get you in the right state to program. That's super freaky. That's, so how about- that's where I'm thinking, dude. <laughs> so here's something for you. So Emotive sort of, if you don't know what this does, it records your brain waves and it in patterns and if you could just have this recording all day yeah. and at the same time record a video of you and i don't know it can't record a video but you record a video of yourself working mm-hmm. right and so when it matches up you don't know like because you don't have metadata associated with this stuff that's what you have to assign to it yeah but if you could just Record both of those things and sync them up in time. Well, throw right? the TFS data well, in well, too, wait, wait, wait. so I have my source of okay. what I wrote at the time. Hear me out here. So now, if it finds a match on any particular other point in time, it would throw up that video and say, hey, the last time you were in this brain state, this is what you were doing. Huh. Huh. And you can actually begin to find patterns of behavior that were matched to brain states. I like the idea of there's a... You know when you're in the zone, you write a good chunk of code. Mm. The fact that we'd have all that data about how we looked, what we were, you know, what the brain state so far was at the point at which that piece got written. Yeah, I think that would be. You know, we, we need to do cool. a totally different show. Yeah. <laughs> the, the brain <laughs> show. We're off the on brainwave the show. Off on the uh, off the rails entirely. But yeah. I think we all have had this experience of you know exactly that. I I just before just as my kids went off to school before I went off to take a shower. I sat down to write a little code, and then my kids came home from school. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I yeah. still need to take a shower. <laughs> wow. right? it's yeah. like, and it's been seven hours. Absolutely. Yep. It's like, I want a copy of what was going on in my head at that time. And how do I get back there? Yeah. What, right. what got me to that spot? I mean, I've, I've written four books, and I remember reading, rereading a book going, who wrote this? I don't even remember. Writing. <laughs> you know, and the same thing is I say that about code. my code all <laughs> yeah, the like, time. Who wrote this? Who can I blame? <laughs> oh, it was me. <laughs> I did that. Yeah. Oh, um, we've talked a lot about the instrumenting of the development environment, but there, are there other pieces about the? De- like, I really like instrumenting apps and instrumenting development environment. Yeah. But are there other pieces of the development environment instrumentation that you care about that you think is important? Well, you know, I, th- I always think that it should never be a customer who finds a problem with your software before <laughs> right. you do, right? Yeah, you and so surprised. when you get instrumentation like the one I was just saying, you also get the problem-finding ones, right? Yeah. The ones that were going to look at your application on your behalf and tell you about a problem before your customers do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've done this so many times where it's kind of like we've released um, 
something on the web and we get a customer calling saying, hey, there's a problem. I'm like, whoa, yeah. what happened there? How did that happen? So I want to make sure that, you know, I have a robot that's continually kind of checking my, my performance and my availability and, and even the, the functional flow of my, my assets uh, without me actually doing that. And then letting me know immediately is this, if it's detecting any performance problems sure. before it happens. Well, I like the idea of instrumenting all of the clients so the clients themselves are reporting back constantly. Right. Like the idea that by the time the customer calls, we've already got the bug report from their client. Sure. So you sort of, you know, ideally the two would go together. You know, well, that, that bug report, that, that TFS work item would pop up as the when the phone rang, yeah. matched them up. Well, I mean, it's kind of like the smiley face and unhappy face in office and stuff like right. that. I thought it was brilliant, right? Yeah. I am unhappy. <laughs> and when you submit, it's taking more than your unha- unhappiness in submitting it. It's taking a lot more to, so it can take your unhappiness sure. and do something. How do we get figure. from instrumentation to magic? Um, Dumbledore. The the other technology I think is interesting in this space is if we had something connect like, Mm. so I don't so much want video of a person. I think it's a little creepy, but the, but the, that skeletal look like you can see the physical motions of somebody. I have done video of people watching them use software and seeing the look of frustration on their face or the confusion on their face or the annoyance on their face. What if we had software that was picking that up in real time? Interesting. And so that it, the software's behavior changed based on people's reaction to it. Because you can also recognize delight. Sure. So let's, let's put the sensor on the screen so we're watching the user and modifying software behavior to match what makes them happy. So what would it do? Apologize? Yeah, yeah. that's the, the Canadian, Canadian version. version. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry you're having such a bad day, but you really do need to fill in this form. I've, so noticed, you're, I've noticed you're frustrated. Yeah, well, I noticed you know, you're frustrated. I always think of Clippy. Now if Clippy popped up right away, oh, sorry to go away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you want? Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry just, yeah, yeah. I'll just go well, in. Have you seen, like, when, I, when the <laughs> Xbox One came out and they were showing all of what you can do with the new Kinect? Uh, right. It uh, blew me away. Uh, you know, it can detect... Um, your pulse through mm-hmm. your skin. Yeah. Uh, it can detect uh, just so much levels of detail. Why not yeah. detect frustration? Mm-hmm. Why not detect, you know, it can even do sign language now. There's an app for it for doing yeah, sign that's language. That's cool. Yeah, it's very you cool. You know, the, 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 I rem- remember building software in the Battleship Gray days where you really had two modes. You had the, the amateur mode where they're mostly going to use the mouse and it cares about tool tips mm-hmm. and hints and making things as easy as possible, discoverable as possible. And then the expert mode where it's all shortcut keys, it's fewest numbers of keystrokes to get things done, don't waste my time. Mm. And you had this hop between these two modes. So, you know, somebody started gradually getting better with your software, started to want to take advantage of the expert features. But if you sort of turned on expert mode, it was hard for them. Right. So what if we actually had software able to detect this person is getting more and more competent with this piece of software. So I'm going to simplify things, shorten things, be more brief with things until they're finally fully expert. So you can actually gradiate from easiest to fastest. You're right. talking about an observer that sits outside and watches how the software is used. Actually behaving. And, and you know, turns on and off specific features and, and UX elements based on... Well, we had joked about that um, a decade ago when we thought, you know, Windows should have a little exam that pops up every now and then, asks you questions, and if you're proficient, it would just switch into better modes. Right. (laughs) You know, same thing with Visual Studio. We'd come up with, you know, something very, very simple, you know, hello world, and slowly kind of measure your competency, and then slowly, you know, evolve. You could tell if you're drunk, actually. But this is why I think the user experience revolution (laughs) is really taking over, and it's why it's so important that all teams have someone from user experience involved right, yeah. um, and understanding that persona, understanding how it will learn and change over time. 
is critical. And I know myself as a developer background, I can't empathize the way that user experience people can. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes the difference you in a lot of ways. You don't care about people. Is that what you're saying? I just really? don't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I really appreciate that it's an interesting mind. I mean, I've had that experience with that person who watches how someone interacts with a piece of software yeah. and then thinks something totally different. Yep. Says, what if we did it this way? It mm -hmm. almost throws people off. And I don't want to walk away from your whole point around um, the lean startup and Eric Reese because mm -hmm. he talks about that a lot too. Mm -hmm. That you, sure, you take customer feedback, but you don't do what they say. What you do is build tests to validate that they actually mean what they say. Absolutely. And it comes back to one quote that I keep on recording. Henry Ford, if we would have built better, uh, if we would have listened to customers, we would have built faster horses. Right, right. You're taking their feedback and you're still putting a layer of innovation. Even they're saying, you know, build this feature, build that feature, build this feature. Yeah. You still have to experiment with whether or not that's even true. Yeah. And, and the first step for an agile organization is, is accepting that it's a guess. Yeah. Right? That we can't use our feedback forums as a way of prioritizing our features. Right. That we need to come up with experiments to help validate those. Think about stories. Think about if you went back in time and listened to somebody tell you a story, they would be using the things of the technologies of the day, the, you know, the, the things around them that, you know, to illustrate their points. You'd have to translate that story using the, you know, the metaphors or the motifs or the, the, the modern day stuff. And so it's the same when you're listening to users, what they, what they mean, you're gleaning what they mean, using what they know, transferring that to, you know. Well, and the key is to try to understand value. And we talk about starting with why. Why yeah. do you want that? Right. You're almost something like a, a kid, you whenever you tell them to flush the toilet. Why? Well, because it's, you know, good hygienic. Well, why? Right. <laughs> they, they, they have to work in the same way that we have to. Yeah when it comes to users. Simply responding to what they think is priority may not be addressing their why. We could release the wrong piece of software sure. yeah. and achieve everything that they told us to do and still not fulfill their why. I, I find these problems are especially acute with smart people. Oh. That smart people tend to figure out the solution and present you the solution they want rather than talk about the actual right. problem. And I've fallen into that trap. It's probably my biggest failures mm. in my career is thinking that I understood what the customer wanted right. yeah. and building it right. and then shipping it and then realizing, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> I totally I missed the boat. I'm dealing with a different type of customer here. Yeah. I didn't ask them. I didn't. And not only didn't I not ask them, I didn't validate via experiments mm -hmm. whether or not my assumptions were well, even like true. Like I said, we're all guessing. So the whole trick here is to create tests to validate the results repeatedly. Right. And, and I guess that, that has, you know, we talk about an agile team a lot and an agile team can only do so much. That's why you need to, in order to scale agile, we need to think about the agile business because an agile business really is going to control that. It's right. like, no, no, talk to the users. They'll tell you what you want and then you're done with us and, you know, we'll get it when you're done. And here we go off and we set up our sprints and we do all this stuff and we have incremental validations on an incorrect hypothesis, right? That we still haven't validated. Right. And that's why the Lean Startup is actually based on a methodology called the Customer Development Methodology by Steve Blank. And it's been around for a long, long time. 
but was based uh, it's a new business development model that is making that as an assumption mm-hmm. so there's no there's no uh there's no rules that say the customer development model only works for startups even though it does really work well for yes. startups it works well for any type of organization that kind of can s- uh, flip their thinking a little bit instead of thinking product development we're thinking customer development which is a totally different problem well, right mm-hmm. in the middle of the book and i always warn people you don't have to be a startup to want to read this book because in the middle of the book there's this chapter that basically says so you're inside of a big organization right. so you thought you couldn't deal with startups. Here's how you create a little kernel of startup mentality inside a big organization. Yep, exactly. And you know, the learnings that I've had is never say startup within one of those organizations. Yes. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to bring a startup culture to you, Mr. Bank. They're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, oh no, you aren't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> startups fail a lot, what, and we the, can't the, afford the, the language that I've used. This and is this like is a, why I'm such a lean guy. Feel like an anarchist is is lean. Is right. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to help you remove waste. Right. What executive doesn't want that? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and when we talk about, you probably, you know, you want to maximize the value of investment. You're probably wanting to get uh, quicker cycle times. So that when you make a decision, you get the results of that decision quicker. Right. They're like, yeah, sign me up. Well, I think the other piece of this is lowering the cost of failure. Like you, you said agile organizations a few times. I think the big thing I've found in successful agile organizations is the cost of failure is very low politically as well as uh, as actual physical costs. And because of that, the rate of failure goes up. Right. 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 So in, in traditional organizations, failure is poo-pooed on. We don't like failure. If you're if you failed at something, you get a demotion. In the lean way of thinking about it is no, no, we do want to fail. We want to fail fast though. Right. We right want to often. devise ways of failing early and often because when I failed, I've eliminated a possibility. Right. And I'm left with a smaller said set that I can experiment yeah. against. Right. Mm-hmm. So we promote failure versus success in a lean mindset. As quickly, you know, early, early, early in the process possible. so that less things are affected. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's the hardest thing to deal with with the bigger organization. Thinking about the Canadian bank thing, the big organization is that you build up such a high cost to failure, nobody would dare take the chance. Cool. Well, it's really something. Uh, has anybody heard of the marshmallow challenge? Yes. Right? No. Marshmallow yeah. challenge is begin, you give a few marshmallows, a few uh, six uh, one, oh, marshmallow. or one marshmallow. That's like, right. Yeah. Nine this. strands and, of, of, of and spaghetti. And the worst <laughs> performers of it are MBA students. So just <laughs> tell us again what it is. Uh, so basically, you have to create a, a structure, the highest structure possible out of these, you know, the, a marshmallow, a few strings of spaghetti, a rope. And a piece of tape. Uh, or a piece of tape or something like yeah. that. And the best performers are kindergarten students. Right. Yeah. And the reason for that is because it's a whole, they don't think before they do. They just start experimenting. Start doing. And they start doing and they eliminate possibilities really, really quickly. And they have a tight time limit. It's like yeah. six or seven minutes. And the MBAs, they sit and they plan yeah. and they, 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 this is the way we're going to do it. And they, you know, spend all of their energy on planning and thinking because they're so much smarter than all the rest NBC. of us. Is that where we heard yeah, about we Yeah. It. We saw it there. I've heard yeah. it before. The thing that blew my mind was how many teams Never built anything. Never built anything. Burned up all of the yeah. time arguing over what to build. Absolutely. Never whereas, built a thing. Whereas the kindergartens That's are awesome. built four versions Just, of it. Yeah, started sticking <laughs> spaghetti into a marshmallow. <laughs> yeah. So there's some, you know, so I write about the marshmallow challenge in my blog because that's the kind of thinking that we need to do when we're building business solutions. So one of the other features that really excites me inside of Visual Studio is that it has some new features that help you build business solutions. And it seems to embrace a little bit of that. A little bit, so it's much quicker. So it's not like light switch apps. Mm. It's a little bit more... Um, in depth than building a light switch app, but it's kind of built in the patterns for you and you're really much more declarative in how you're building them. 
But to me, I find that as an opportunity for experimentation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I can get really rapid cycles. Uh, and in Agile, we'd like to deliver very rapidly. Why? Because we're building an experiment that passes or fails at the end of the sprint review. And we give that feedback cycle. But then we decide, well, we don't know enough. So we've added other things like doing mock-ups. Uh, you know, and, and screen mock-ups ahead of time. So those become experiments. And when you start thinking about everything that we do is based on experiments, you mm. start thinking out totally different all the way from your dev all the way up to an executive. Mm. And that's what gets me excited, right, is when businesses pivot yeah. based on these things. Right. But just the experimentation leads them to a totally different position. Absolutely. And, and, and the rate of innovation explodes as a result. Right. We have a question from the audience. Yeah. Uh, first question is, uh, when is uh, custom work items going to be available for uh, Team Foundation service? In the future. <laughs> How many revs of TFS? Next question. I, no, uh, so um, we work really, really closely with Microsoft. That's totally under NDA. I know that that's a big part is their enterprisation of um, the online uh, version of, of, um, of Visual Studio. That also includes... Um, things like being able to have single sign-on with your uh, with your enterprise as well. So those customizations will be coming in future versions. Now, well, here's the interesting thing. Microsoft has started to become less in terms of an every two-year cycle release company to some a company who does think the way we do, a little bit more agile and releases incrementally. So they will be uh, incrementally releasing a lot of these changes over the next year. Those will be immediately available online and then wrapped into the, the core product bad problem about this particular problem is that we already have that in the core product. We've, we've, we've customized our um, process templates uh, locally and it's preventing us from moving us uh, to the cloud. So that is uh, definitely something that they want to address within the next couple of releases. I can't tell you when though. And second question is, is um, over the summer uh, Microsoft bought a uh, product called InRelease. Absolutely. And do you have any information on that? Um, so in release um, is actually an old friend of mine, Claude uh, owns in release. Um, and years ago, he was telling me, I've got this idea for helping companies manage the release of their software. So, you know, going through the staging environment, I have a dev environment, I've got a test environment, might have a QA, I might want to have some workflows that I might have approvals. Yep, this, you know, got approved in test, I'm going to automate uh, the deployment of it into the other uh, versions. So he built a tool that was an add-on to TFS. Now this is also a, a testament to how the TFS team really works. It's a very open platform. Right. If you have an, an innovation that is going to use that data, you can go off and build it, include did, and created a company, uh, a product around this release management cycle. So part of it is basically you can kind of paint out your release environments. An agent exists in all those different environments that knows how to talk to the, to the build deploy <laughs> Uh, and then you can automate the, um, the process of releasing these through your stages of an environment. Uh, it could be done in a very continuous flow. It could be done in kind of larger chunks. Uh, and those pieces are, um, are only on-premises still and will eventually be added to, the, on, uh, to the, um, the Visual Studio Online. I have to change my terminology now yep. because they yeah. changed Tweaking the name. Yeah, the, the Visual Studio Online pieces that are still only available um, on, uh, sorry, on the on-premise. But it's a wonderful tool. You can go and download it today and install it in your TFS environment and start using it. Uh, it's uh, loosely coupled with the, the Visual Studio environment. You need to have Visual Studio and TFS, but it's uh, a side-by-side -side install that allows you to kind of create those environments. Fantastic tool. Awesome. Well, that's about it. All the time we have. Let's give a round of applause to Joel Semeniuk. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! Yeah! Thanks, Atlanta!
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard. Pay my taxes.